1: The following podcast contains explicit language.
2: It's Friday, September 9th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It was revealed today that Wells Fargo giant bank financial institution, Wells Fargo, attempted to rip off their customers by signing them up for online banking accounts and credit cards that they didn't want. Now, at first, when I heard that Wells Fargo, like 5,000 employees who were fired, maybe some more who weren't, were signing customers up for credit cards they didn't want, I figured, oh, they were signing them up for like credit cards with dopey graphics like Tigger or the Houston Texans or Save the Narwhals. No, these were cards that customers never applied for. It was just like a scam to reach some sales goals. And in some cases, the customers found out they had these credit cards cards when they were hit with fees and penalties. This is mind boggling. How mind boggling? So mind boggling that we found an Englishman to say the word mind boggling. This is absolutely mind boggling. How did this happen? And here was the answer from Bloomberg's Jesse Hamilton.
0: They had uh, thousands of employees that felt they were under such pressure. They opened fake deposit and credit card accounts to make their sales goals.
2: Now, I found out about this story, not from Bloomberg, not from any television station, but by opening both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And there were full page ads reading to Wells Fargo customers, our commitment to you. Rule of thumb, whenever you see a Fortune 500 company take out a full page ad in the New York Times that says we have a commitment to our customers, you know that Fortune 500 company is beating back a scandal, right? You say something racist, you got to go do Sharpton, you rip off thousands of customers or fake emission standards or issue an exploding smartphone... Full-page ad in the Times and Journal. And what better way for a company to express that it understands cyber crimes and financial chicanery and technology-aided identity theft? What better way to communicate that than with a full-page ad in a broadsheet? Next, they will be distributing tintypes for reprint in Colliers and McClure's. These can be quickly disseminated, given the advanced state of the telegraph and the steamship. In fact, it is not Bloomberg. It is not TV. It is not newspapers that you will find the best medium to communicate this mind-boggling news. No, as with so many things, it is through song, music, and lyrics by Meredith Wilson. Oh, the Wells Fargo wagon is a coming down the street. Oh, please
0: let it be for me. Oh, oh the Wells Fargo wagon is a comin' down the street. I wish, I wish I knew what it could be. I got a box of maple sugar on my birthday. In March, I got a
1: great mad!
2: And I got a credit card I never wanted, in clear contravention of federal law.
0: I got some salmon from Seattle last September. And I expect a new rocking
2: chair. I hope I get my raisins from Fresno. Or two million bank accounts for customers caught unaware. On the show today, it is an Antan Twig, but first, Tony Kornheiser, journalist, legendary cranky human. I think that might be something of an act. He turns out to be rather cuddly, and he also turns out not to be a radio broadcaster anymore, but something called a podcaster. Let's listen.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Shopify.
2: Tony Kornheiser, columnist, media personality, talk show host, is famously terrestrially bound. He did not like flying when he was on Monday Night Football, and he has echoed that sentiment with his radio career. He is off the airwaves and onto the internet. There is a new podcast bearing his name, which is excellent branding. It is number one in iTunes. Hello, Tony Kornheiser.
1: Number one, that's great. Can we stay there? Can we sustain that?
2: That would be great. I don't think that's how these things go. Oh, too
1: bad. (laughs) They rise and fall.
2: And I noticed the branding is Tony with an exclamation, and you worry about the Jeb with an exclamation echo.
1: I, not in a thousand years would I have ever put those two things together, nor do I think that Donald Trump would ever say to me, I'm weak and have no energy. No energy. So <laughs> I don't worry about that. that uh, the branding is a result of my son, Michael, mm-hmm. um, who is the executive producer of the show and is in charge of all things having to do with social media because I am so old that I don't do anything on social media. So everything that you see... And everything that you read on Facebook and Twitter and God knows what else, as Larry King would say, the Hulu, that's all my kid. That my job is to get in front of the mic and talk, and his job is everything else.
2: Is it different, that part of the job, after, uh, what, two shows so far? Is that any difference that you're feeling? No, it's the same
1: show. The difference is the method of delivery. That's all. I mean, I got, you know, all of my old friends, they go, well, how do we get this thing? And I go, do you have a grandson or a granddaughter? It's two (laughs) buttons you have to push. It's not that hard. And they say, well, it won't come out of the radio. And I said, do you have a smartphone? And they go, yeah. I said, so just stop worrying about it. It's if you liked the radio show, And I say this to anybody who's listening, if you like the radio show, it is the exact same show. It's a little bit shorter. On a two-hour radio show, you probably have 80 minutes of content, and we're trying to go 60, 65 minutes. I mean, it's been described to me that you want to be just long enough for somebody to work out to it. So... That's what we're trying to do, but it has guests, and it has different segments, and it has the same smart and funny adults in the room that have been in the room for the last X amount of years.
2: You know, there is a a notion, there is an argument with podcasting that the more good podcasts come around, it can only rise all the boats, and yet at the same time, there is the reality that as other good podcasts come along, well, maybe people have less time for your podcast, or I'm specifically thinking of my podcast, but... I'm very excited about your podcast because I think it really does grow the demographic. It's all these people who aren't already listening to podcasts. I would bet that you are bringing or your show has the potential to bring more new people. Sure, they're old people, but new people to podcasts than most other new shows.
1: I'm always very surprised, by the way, when people under the age of 30 in particular come up to me and they say they've listened for years and they continue to listen. And that's really good because you want to have an audience that's expanding as opposed to people my age that are just dying and contracting. So I'm happy for that. I mean, it's, it's a radio show. If I understood podcasts correctly, and you would know better than I, the overwhelming majority of them are not five days a week, like a radio show is. And they either tell you specifically how to do something, or people are maybe sitting around and reviewing something close to their hearts. Mine is an adult talk show. It's a radio show transplanted into the podcast world, uh, for better or for worse. It's got, it's segmented, it's different. The voices are different. We're trying for smart and funny, and we will forgive anything for smart and funny. But, but it's not. If I understand podcasts correctly, it's not the sort of traditional. And I don't want to say one note, I don't want to demean anybody, but yeah. the sort of narrowly directed thing that podcasts may be, with the exception, obviously, of Simmons, my great friend, Bill Simmons, and people like, you know, Adam Carolla and people like that. Right,
2: Carolla's sort of doing what you do. I mean, you also, yeah. have, you also have two great attributes, which are often overlooked in podcasting, good microphones and not too long. I wonder, were there things on the radio show that you were made to do that you didn't want to do? And so does podcast represent a liberation? at all
1: in any way. It doesn't represent a liberation in terms of the actual content, because I enjoyed the content. Although sometimes you had to stretch for a second guest and sometimes you had to stretch for four or five minutes to do something. But we're doing news and we're doing guests and we're doing old guy radio and we're doing an open, you know, it's the news of the day and stuff like that. So no, that's not liberating. What what may turn out to be liberating down the road is if I actually make a dollar and a half, (laughs) because I, I left two years of a pretty good contract on the table in order to now be an employer and not only to make no money, but to lose money because I have to pay people. And, And I, you know, there's every once in a while I wake up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night and I go, are you crazy for doing this at your age? Are you crazy? But I watch newspapers die under me. And it was a terrible feeling because it was the career I always wanted, and I began to get the sense that maybe radio was going to die under me too, and so I I I jumped, I jumped into the volcano, and I just said, I can own my own content, I can do the show that I want, and with a little bit of luck, I'm going to find an audience. Over 90% of the people that listened to me in Washington were out of market; they were podcasting it themselves. Yeah, and I felt that if I had that audience, then, then, then why don't I just leap completely into the medium? So help me on the timeline on this. You were a columnist
2: for the post and you had a radio show that was local, national, then local, then PTI came, PTI, your ESPN show with Wilbon came along and the the column went away soon after that. Is that right?
1: Well, I, I tried to keep doing it. PTI came along in 2001. Unbelievably, we've been on the air for 15 full now. Um, it came along in 2001, and I wanted to keep writing, but I was doing radio, I was doing television, and I ended up as a columnist trying to invent a new form, and the form was the column net, you know, it was something small. And I called it, I even gave it a name, a few choice words. And I tried to write about 200 words, three or four times a week. And I you know, I don't know that I got any particular enthusiastic response from the people in, in editing and I don't know that it made any inroad and it became after a while it became easy to give up and the fingers didn't type anymore. I did it for four or five years and and, and then it just became obvious that, that my present and my future was gonna be in talking and not writing and I respect writing so much that I, I didn't want to give less than a maximum effort. And I thought I was beginning to repeat myself and cut corners. And I said, it's, it's better to go before somebody looks around and says, what on earth is this guy trying to do? So I hope I got out in time.
2: So when you went from primarily writing as your most prominent or uh, yeah. most well-attended to outlet to talking, be it on TV or radio, how did the way you process the world change your habits of mind, maybe even your media
1: intake? How, how did the yeah. mental change? Well, first of all, change? I made a whole lot more money. Okay, that's good. <laughs> a whole lot more money for less work, which is, you know, most, most people would say it's a great country, isn't it? Um, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'd be terrified to write now. I mean, I've got friends who are younger than I and have had great careers. David Remnick would be an example. He was an intern. He's the editor of New Yorker, which I'm sure most of your audience knows. And Remnick was an intern in the sports section of the Washington Post and then started in the style section and the sports section of the Washington Post as a writer. And he's been a writer his whole life. And he's written great books and he's won great prizes. And and I, I envy that. I marvel at it. I would be afraid to sit down and try and write now that I just would, I wouldn't be any good. I wouldn't have anything to say. I am so used to talking in smaller bursts. And, and the writing, therefore, is in smaller bursts. To have to face blank pages and have to know I had to fill them with something good, I, I, I'd, I'd be terrified to do it.
2: Well, I want to ask you about one of your speaking techniques. You sort of do this thing where you lower the temperature. I know ESPN has this embrace debate slogan. And what that often means is embrace bracing debate, if you will. But, you know, there is, and I'm not even complimenting you on, oh, thanks for being calm and not a shouter. I actually think it's just a good rhetorical technique to get people to pay attention to you. Was that something you had to learn? You know what I'm talking about, right?
1: I do. Mike and I started this television show at rather advanced ages. (laughs) We had worked together at the Washington Post already for 20 years, for 20 years before we started PTI. I know how he thinks, and he knows how I think. And we can yell at each other, and that's great fun. But when we yell at each other, it's always, I think, in my case, for comedic intent, because I want people to laugh a little bit. When we're serious... You can tell it in the modulation of the voice and we'll look at each other and we'll even say, come on, this is a serious deal. When we're arguing, we're arguing in a civil way. Uh, And when it's an important issue, we may not even be arguing. It just we just may be loud a little bit, you know,
2: perhaps the broader point there is that you're not performing for a camera in that moment. You're trying to convince a person you know, the person right across
1: from you. And that's different from a lot of the time. I mean, in essence, what my posture is, are you crazy? Are you really going (laughs) with that? You can't honestly believe that, or as John McEnroe would say, you cannot be serious. And we can go not just up to the line, we can go over the line with one another because we know each other so well. We're also equipped to talk about things that are important in the culture that other people try to do, and we can do it with a smile, and that's race. Yeah, And not everybody can do that, but it's based on the relationship. The show is based on relationships.
2: I don't know if this is true, and I'm, this is not an accusation couching a question, but do you think that you've changed in who you instinctively side with in terms of establishment versus anti-establishment?
1: Um I probably over the years as people do as they get older I probably have sided more as I've gotten older with establishment figures than anti-establishment figures when I was younger my idols were people like you know Joe Namath who was certainly an anti-establishment figure and I, I identified with that when I was in college and when I was starting out as a writer at Newsday and and the New York Times and I think that I as I've gotten money and position and property like most people do, I've probably become a little bit more conservative. And then I learned as a sports writer, what I learned is that players come and go. You may love the players and they may give you great information and you use that to the best way you can, but ownership and management tends to stay a little bit longer. And so if you cultivate sources and ownership and management it may be a little bit re- more rewarding in the long term but you do have to step back from it at, at all times and i don't know if if radio and tv people feel this in the same way that someone who's who's first 50 years where newspapers feels this, you always have to ask yourself, who benefits from this information? How much am I being used in this information? Are you sure you want to go with this? Because you've got to to ask yourself, who benefits? And then you got to back away sometimes from information. So there's one last area I want to get into,
2: Pretentiousness. There is a through line in your career, and I was listening to an old, intro, uh, an old radio segment you did about an old piece you did about Barry Manilow. And throughout oh, that, throughout that were comments about how pretentious so much of uh, his stagecraft uh, was. And even in, so all the way through to yesterday's show, I think uh, Chris was talking about going to a Nats game and he couldn't order a white wine, and the word pretentiousness <laughs> wasn't there, but it was sort of Hanging over the conversation, not to be pretentious. I almost did it. (laughs) I almost did it because I was going to finish off my night with, you know, a nice little little glass glass one, And I didn't do it for the very reason that I knew I would be relentlessly mocked. Right. And I have this theory that the uh, policing of pretentiousness in the last twenty years has really gone away, and there's a whole lot of pretentiousness, like in every ingredient in Whole Foods, and it's something that society seems not to be bothered with. But you, You I've
1: never set foot in a Whole Foods.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't
1: surprise me. Never, I'm not going to a Whole Foods, and I also don't go to. Those giant Costco stores, because I just don't feel that I want to walk into a store where meat is sold in the adjoining aisle to tires I just i can 't do that, <laughs> but i don 't go to Whole Foods, even though my kids do no i don 't
2: pretentiousness is this something that still gets to you uh, maybe in a way that other people have let it go and stopped fighting the fight against pretentiousness societally
1: I think that pretense when used for humor is wonderful, but I also think that you know, wine reviewers. I mean, come on, stop, stop. (laughs) You know, words like (laughs) oaky. Come on. You know, what is it with a hint of rascal in it? I mean, we all have a pretentious streak in us and it's up to somebody every once in a while to walk up to you, sidle up and just say, are you serious with those pants? Come on. You're not really serious with those pants. Tony
2: Kornheiser is heady with notes of oak, playful, but not (laughs) insouciant. His show, The Tony Kornheiser Show, is available everywhere in the world, thanks to the miracle of podcasting. It's every day. It's a little over an hour. You might like it. Thank you, Tony.
1: Thank you very, very much.
2: And now the spiel. It's an Antan twig. Every three weeks we check in with you. We air your comments. We hear your compliments. We take in your kudos. What else? Let's see. What else?
0: Complaints.
2: Um, Hosanna's, attaboys, laurels.
0: Complaints, Mike. Complaints. Yeah, yeah, I
2: know. That is the traditional way that we do the ant twig. But doesn't dwelling on weakness just keep you mired in your own mistakes? Isn't this what Trump has taught us?
0: No, I think it keeps you honest as a journalist. Okay, we agree to disagree. No, we just disagree.
2: Okay, it's a way to look at it. Anyway, first full disclosure about the nature of the podcast you are listening to. Yes, it is a podcast, but that does not mean that it is secretly going to air on Russia today It will also not air on North Korea radio. And you know I am sincere when I say that because
0: North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has banned sarcasm. Which
2: could have been a mistake on Kim's part. Wait, you mean all those compliments about my height were sarcastic? But we here make mistakes too. This was sent in by Camille Storch, who writes arugula and rocket are two names for the same vegetable. Now I had just said be it arugula or be it Rocket. I was just randomly pulling two pieces of lettuce out of my garden. But no, she's right. The two I pulled are really the same thing. You want the etymology? Camille Storch is right now listening to this saying, No, just wanted to correct you. You're getting the etymology. I'm going to derivation explain this to you. It's kind of interesting. The word arugula, it comes from an Italian word rucola. But in the south of Italy, rucola was standard and then it became arucola and that was brought over to the United States. arugula. But in the north of Italy, it was rucchetta and has migrated even further north, Switzerland, France, and that becomes roquette. Rocket, arugula not only the same vegetable, but actually the same root word. I am not done with my lettuce etymology. Do you know there are five types of lettuce? Butterhead, crisp head, loose leaf, romaine, and celtis? Crisphead head lettuce is most commonly known as iceberg lettuce. where they get the name iceberg lettuce? In the 1920s, California lettuce growers began shipping lettuce to faraway markets in rail cars packed with crushed ice. Now about celtus, celtus is a stem lettuce. It has thick stems, tender leaves, and the word itself is a combination of Of celery and lettuce, because the flavor of the lettuce is similar to the flavor of celery, which I was surprised to learn because I did not think celery had flavor. I can imagine the pitch meeting. You got the lettuce guys, you got the celery guys. They tell the lettuce guys, you you can't go this alone, you need to merge. They got the celery guys, we need to find a suitor for you. And they're each worrying about if the other one's gonna hurt their brand, drag it down a little bit. We're crunchy and bland, we're crunchy and light green. This is a little like Mitt Romney, human lettuce, when he had to pick a running mate. I'm going to go with Paul Ryan, human celery. Combo of celery and lettuce. Guys, we need to spice up lettuce. So we brought in a hot marketing guru. Now, now, Jim, before you pitch us on what you want to combine with lettuce, I just want you to know the last guy, he pitched rhubarb. And that that that's just radical and threatening. So we fired him. Anyway, go ahead. So Jim slowly replaces the bottle of sriracha. Into his attache case, silently closes it and says, um, how about celery? How's celery for you guys to combine with lettuce? And the lettuce guys are like, celery? Hmm. Celery and lettuce. That is interesting. You're definitely fired, but I'm going to have to think about celery. Celtus. Hmm. Okay, enough with disrupting the lettuce space onto Lobstar's. Lobstars are those people on Facebook.com slash SlateGist or Twitter who were thrilled or engaged or delighted and in turn delighted me. Chris Harrison listened to when I was talking about some of the political fact check sites and I have a big problem with them. They're overly literal. They're bad with their grades. They just can't say lie or truth. Some politician will say this never happens. And they find out that it sometimes happens, but won't call that a lie. They'll call it mostly a lie. No, it's just a lie. Anyway, he found one and he said, your spiel about fact checking reminded me of this idiotic PolitiFact check from 2010. The governor of Georgia was talking about his commitment to funding education, motions to the statehouse roof and said, if we have to scrape the gold off the gold dome, you make sure that education comes first. So PolitiFact checked it, and it turns out not enough gold in the dome to fund education. Great, worthy contribution. I can say that because we're not in North Korea. But this idea does give rise to another fact-check opportunity.
1: And I'll be there for you till the last dog dies.
2: Actually, biologists say that canine familiaris diverged from the gray wolf 130,000 years ago can be expected to last as long, far outstripping the average lifespan of an Arkansan. We rate this three Lhasa Opsos. Another great contribution came from Alan Merson. I was talking about the Clinton Foundation and how the Crown Prince of Bahrain donated and then got an audience with the Secretary of State. How are we to know if this was quid pro quo? Isn't the Crown Prince of Bahrain the kind of person the Secretary of State should be talking to? He offered a suggestion. Imagine the clarity we'd get if the Bahraini Prince had to type in coupon code ClintonFDN at weapons checkout, 20% discount. Funny also ties into things that I say. But the lobster of the Antan Twig, the best listener, is John Mills. A couple days ago, I was talking about how my birthdays as a kid are now my kids' Thursdays, such as the state of entertainment expansion in our culture and through generations. He writes, as a parent, you work hard to make sure that your kids' lives are better than yours. And in doing so, they don't care because their lives are better than yours. If Schadenfreude is taking pleasure in someone else's misery, then Dadenfreude is feeling misery due to the pleasure of others. I grew up in a poor family, John Mills says. We never went to Disneyland or Disney World. So it was with great pride that I announced to our children that the tickets had been purchased and we were going to Disney World and they smiled and said, that's nice. And then asked if they could play Minecraft now. Sigh, Dadenfreude their lives don't suck. And I hope, to some extent, at this moment, yours, John Mills, does not either. Because you are the lopstar of the Antan Twig. That's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson found herself signed up for Term Life, Whole Life, Cinnamon Life. Just producer Chris Berube found himself signed up for a credit card machine, one of the old ones. Love those things. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, was signed up for a triple reverse mortgage, the terms of which indicated that if he could not make ballooning payments to the lending institution, he got to live in the bank. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, saw someone take out a 12-month CD in his name, or at least that's what he told the library when he got wind of the late fees on that Hootie and the Blowfish album. The gist... We were signed up against our will for dozens of magazine subscriptions. We need to call someone about this, but the sneaker phone is on the fritz. du Peru, and thanks for listening.